Thanks for the invite, Valley, and so really fun to be here. And it's been a minute since I've like had to put on a headset on and you know bring my church Bible with me. You know the the big impressive one. I don't know if you guys brought yours or not, but maybe you should. I don't know. Uh, this is the first time I've ever like made notes with this new thing. It's called a remarkable. You've seen all the ads and stuff, and I've never written a sermon on it before. But I thought as I was taking notes, well, maybe I should try to just do it and not have to. Maybe it, let's just call it a shortcut. I took a shortcut, so you tell me how it goes. And then uh, one more bit of nervous ramble is I feel like I want to move the stand up like a little bit closer because you guys are, is all right? Lighting, I want to make sure the light gets my good, the best part. Am I going to, am I Kevin? Yeah. Did you even brush your hair today? <laughs> Kevin used to fall asleep in church, so <laughs> boom. <laughs> he probably will tonight just to get even with me for telling you that. I don't, I don't really want to make up, like, all the things I know about everybody in the room. Some of you I don't know, and I'll try to find out your, your sins if I could. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I would, but we all do things that are, let's call them mistakes, Right? do things that are they're either awkward, they're bad, they're, they're with no taste, or they're just flat-out sinful stuff. And living in a more rural environment, I have, <clears throat> I'm learning a lot of things, and I'm learning uh, really through my mistakes and learning through doing things wrong. And one example of that is I have this, was trying to clear some land on our property, and my mom's husband uh, let me his bulldozer, bulldozer, okay? Not a tractor, but a bulldozer. And anyone that knows me would think, Ken, you really shouldn't have a bulldozer. <laughs> you know, there's some things you do, but bulldozer isn't one of them. So I had this, it's like a 1965 John Deere bulldozer. It's not a huge one, but it's probably like, well, let's just say it's big enough to bulldoze, right? And uh, I was out bulldozing stuff, and I was going back to, towards our barn, and what happened is that the throttle got stuck wide open. And you're really close to the engine at that point. You know, you're sitting there, it's old, and the motor's just right there. And it didn't get stuck partially open, it got stuck wide open. And so the solution was easy, turn off the key. And I did it, I just turned it off, like, you know, I was in a race car, and nothing blew up, and I got around, got off the tractor, and it's, got, it's an old tractor with those metal tracks, if you could kind of picture that, yellow, rusty, but with the big old, you know, blade on the front. I walked around, and, you know, I saw pretty easy to see that the linkage to the throttle had come undone. So I thought, well, this is easy. I'll put it on, drive it back to the barn area, and figure out how to fix it permanently. So I put the throttle linkage back on. I went, and instead of getting into the tractor, I wanted to kind of keep an eye on the linkage. So I reached in to turn the key to the tractor, or to the, to the bulldozer. But just before I turned the key on, I thought to myself for a second, I wonder whether or not I have this bulldozer in gear or not. And if this tractor was so old, and now they would have a safety feature, but in 1964, they didn't have a safety feature on it. Uh, and they learned how because of guys like me that shouldn't be on it. But I thought to myself, I should make sure that it's in gear or not in gear. And I turned the ignition on anyway, thinking, 
what are the odds that it, one, that I have it in gear, and two, what would be the odds that it would start in gear? So I'm safe. I'm good to go. And I turned the ignition, and it started right up, and my first thought was, genius, you fixed the throttle. It's all good. And then there's a little delay, and all of a sudden, I realize it revs up, and as it revs up, I realize, oh, my goodness, I didn't fix the throttle at all. It's still wide open. And the next thing that happened is the bulldozer took off on me. It took off heading right towards my mother-in-law's, my sweet mother-in-law's mobile home that she lives in or towards our barn. In either case, it was going to do some damage, right? I'll tell you a little about how I was feeling. This is about maybe two months ago. I had a double hernia, right? So you guys, ever, who's had a hernia here? <laughs> Thank you. All right. So you guys feel me. Now, feel, and then you feel me twice because I had two. You probably only had one, right? I had two double and I had a bad knee so I was getting physical therapy a very serious injury playing pickleball a very serious sport athletic event uh, and as the bulldozer took off wide open throttle right I thought to myself maybe this is how I go maybe it wasn't the first cancer maybe it wasn't the second cancer maybe this is it so I thought to myself, how am I going to shut it down? And I thought, well, it's, you know, Jackie, my mother-in-law, she's almost 90, you know, lived a good life. Uh, <laughs> as it's heading towards her mobile home, I just thought, hmm. And I knew that if, if I couldn't really jump over the tracks because that would have been dangerous because they were going. And by the way, it's not going fast because at the, at the end of the story is I chase it down. So you know, look at me, thinking about my double hernia and my bad knee. I didn't have to run that fast, but I looked at the track going around. I thought, I think I could just, you know, get behind it and see a solid piece of metal that, didn't, that wasn't moving, you know. So I jumped on the back of the bulldozer as it's racing towards our barn in the mobile home. And I reach up and I shut off the ignition and it dies down. Everything is good. I get off the bulldozer. I stand back. And one of the first things I did was I kind of looked around. <laughs> And thought, did anybody see that? Because <laughs> I didn't want anybody to see it. You know, it's, it's kind of embarrassing, one, to, to start something when you're not in the seat. Just take that as a lesson. I feel like that's enough of a sermon, right? <laughs> Don't start anything if you're not in the seat. And I spent uh, time looking around just wondering, man, is, is there anybody that's going to see how stupid I am around this heavy equipment that is really not part of my gig in life you know and I don't know if you probably haven't had to chase a bulldozer but you've probably had to figure out what to do with the mistakes that you've made in your life you've probably done something wrong stupid short-sighted sin call it all these things combine them together we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God but sometimes our life is about how we respond to those mistakes and what we do to sort of make it so we're not constantly chasing bulldozers for the rest of our life. In the passage that Michael gave to me, it's a really interesting time in the life and ministry of Jesus and be really helpful tonight if you read along because there is kind of a lot of text. It's in, starting in Matthew 21, verse 23. Jesus had just, this is a time when he had just had that, the, the triumphal entry Right around the time he, knew, he came and, and uh, he overturned the money changers in the temple 
and got real sort of just passionate about his father's house and this was a time when sort of the, the hate from the Pharisees towards Jesus was really at an all-time high. They were just trying to figure out not just how to have him arrested, but how to kill him. So there was just a, a lot of tension. And there's one other thing I should mention as we get into this text is that it wasn't that long ago when Jesus' very close friend and relative, John the Baptist, was killed and he wasn't just killed, but he was killed uh, in such a violent way, in such a disrespectful way. And there's no doubt that that is sort of weighing into the text here as you see the thoughts that Jesus had as he's dealing with these Pharisees. So Jesus is teaching in the temple and he's, he's sharing these thoughts and he starts out in verse 23, it says this. So I'm in Matthew 21, verse 23. And when he entered the temple, the chief priest and the elders of the people came up to him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? So this is the beginning of this sort of moment where the Pharisees say to Jesus, who do you think you are? I don't know if you ever had that happen in your life. Just who, what gives you the right? That's basically what they were saying to Jesus. Who do you think you are to be teaching us all of these things? And that was, that was uh, followed up with, by this question, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them. He said, I also will ask you one question and if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. And here was what Jesus asked him. He said, the baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we are afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And then Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. So this was just the first part of this moment where they're asking Jesus, trying to get, maybe trying to trick him into saying the wrong thing. And of course, Jesus saw that. And if you read this passage and many others in the Gospels, you'll see that Jesus was always one step ahead of the Pharisees because he had sort of his mission to accomplish. And this mission was to walk <clears throat> just intentionally and diligently to the cross, which was prepared for him willingly doing that on our, on our behalf and, and for us. So this question of the Pharisees really didn't get very far uh, with Jesus. And then, so you, you, I don't really need to explain anything else on this. I mean, I think it's pretty self-evident that that was a great response from Jesus. And it really shows more, again, that uh, what happened to John was, was still on his mind. This was also, I would say, just another little background thing. Is this is a sort of transition in the ministry of Jesus, and, and really in the in the think about the whole context of Christianity, <clears throat> where the kingdom of God, which is Jesus is talking about, and he's going to share three parables in a second, was all about the kingdom of God taken away from the Pharisees who thought they had it, to um, I guess the Gentiles. I'll just call them us who didn't have it because we weren't Jewish. 
we weren't, a, we weren't in that tradition. So historically, the Pharisees thought they had the rights and the reins of this and no one else mattered. This is the beginning where Jesus is beginning to teach them. You don't really know what you're saying. You don't really know what's happening. So he starts with John. And to further explain what happened with John, he gives us this parable. And this is called the parable of the two sons. What do you think in the same, in the, in the same conversation when he says, well, I'm not going to tell you by whose authority because I think Jesus was saying you kind of know anyway. What do you think? A man had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first, right? So it's a pretty simple parable. We've all heard it. I was thinking of the parable this way. This would be my parable. This is the parable of the man with three sons. And he said to the first son, hey, it's fall. All the leaves on the farm are falling. Would you come to the farm and help me rake leaves? And he said that to the first son. <clears throat> and the first son said, pretty busy, Dad. I like got to get up in the morning and have to be someplace really early. I'd like to go, maybe right but he said to the second son hey well, you want to come to the farm and help me raise leaves and he didn't say anything he just did this with his eyes <laughs> <sighs> took a deep breath and that was all that needed to be said <laughs> he said to his third son will you come to the farm and help me rake leaves and the third son said sure dad I'd be glad to go the son help you rake leaves I thought about that because Jackson comes and helps me. All my boys help me on the farm if I really need it. But my point is, not my point, the point of the parable is, is the, 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 the son, I don't know honestly which one of my three sons is going to help me this fall. Might be Jackson, might be Kenny, might be Michael, I don't know. Well, I mean, we'll see. I'll report back to you. So, but I have a lot of leaves, a lot of leaves. I guess for that, you know, maybe one of you guys would like to come up. Maybe one of the Nemechek kids come up and hang out for a while, or Jackson Rhodes, I don't know, Colby, come on up. But you're into trees and plants and stuff, right? You could look around. Congratulations on your new store opening up, though. That's pretty good. What's it called again? Root Bound. I like it. I don't know what that means, but that's cool. It's not a weed shop, is it? It's not, right? House plants. House plants. <laughs> Colby's got a store for houseplants. That's cool. Yeah. At this point in the passage, uh, I mean, I, the real passage, you know what it is, two sons. And then Jesus says, the question is, uh, which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. Basically, the one that showed up and did the work. And then Jesus said, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. Now, that was just the equivalent of a slap in the face. Now, whenever Jesus said truly, he said it like in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he said truly like 50 times. 
Sometimes you'll read that Jesus says, truly, truly, you know, the double truly, or the amen and amen, it's a double amen. It's basically said, this is legit. I have the authority, and I have the experience. I've seen it. That's the equivalent when he says truly. So Jesus, whenever he said truly, it was his way to basically make a strong point. But remember who he's talking to, Pharisees, religious leaders, the people who sort of in their mind had the keys to the kingdom. And he says, truly, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are ahead of you in the line to the kingdom. And it was a brutal, vicious hit on who they were as religious people. It was a slap in the face. It was a punch in the stomach. It was, it was offensive because I don't need to tell you, but I feel like I should mention it because it comes up again. Tax collectors were hated because they were like scam artists. They stole from you. You couldn't do anything about it. Everybody knew it. The tax collectors were fine with it. And everybody, it wasn't like the same as how we feel about the IRS, which no one would really, you know, no one likes writing a check or whatever. We like getting the check. We don't like writing the check. This was if the IRS had you know, mafia backup and they would come up and say, we're just going to take what we want and you're going to give us what we want or else you're not going to do business anymore. It was just, it was crooked, you know? So naturally you would, you would hate a tax collector and in that culture, the culture of religious, religious people, you couldn't get any worse than a tax collector. We have a hard time imagining what that would be like to be a tax collector, but you were at the bottom of the barrel socially. I don't even know what to compare it to. No one had compassion for a tax collector. Well, he's just doing his job. You know, there was none of that. It was that guy's ripping us off. You know, that's, you know. And then he says, tax collectors and prostitutes are going to get into heaven. So don't need to go into what in a culture a prostitute would fit in. But if um, they're not exactly high in our social structure, right? In our, in, you know, there, there is a little bit more compassion, I would say, for uh, people that have to do that and are trafficked and things like that. But there wasn't any compassion for a prostitute in that culture either. It was this is the worst of the worst. So when Jesus looked right at the crowd who were listening to him teach and he says, I'm going to tell you something. Tax collectors and prostitutes get into heaven before you do. He is trying to tell them something that they, he never wanted them to forget. He is saying something to us that he does not want us to forget from his word about how it is that we get into heaven and how it is that we don't get into heaven. They believe that John came from God and you didn't. He brings that up in the next verse here. Uh, let me find it. I don't even know where to, I never read my Bible anymore, so I just can't even <laughs> find it, yeah. Tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you do. He said in verse 32, for John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. So he's saying, you saw it with your own eyes. 
You just forgot about it, put it away, didn't choose to follow. And other people saw, and they began to follow, and they began to believe. It was a very, very powerful statement then, and it's also a powerful statement now because the fact of the matter is is the actions of in, the, in this story, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, their actions is what showed what they believe in the same way that our actions as followers of Christ, um, what we do and how we live our life is a display of what's happening on the inside. I know there's exceptions to that. I know that we can fake it and I'm a great faker, but you probably are a pretty good faker too. We know how to, we know how to, but you know, the, what Jesus is telling us is what's going on in your actions will display what's happening on the inside of your life. Tax collectors and prostitutes with faith are better off than judgy, self-righteous people in God's kingdom. I'll just say it again. Tax collectors and prostitutes are better off than judgy, self-righteous religious people in God's kingdom if they have faith. That's sort of the, the thing that must be said. They're not there because of what they do, good or bad. They're there because what's in their hearts. They have faith. And we all know what it's like to meet people and judge people uh, and make assessments about them. But Jesus was pretty clear throughout the Gospels, not just by what he said and what was in his sermons like this one, but also in who he spent time with, who he said things about, that where you were socially in this life didn't matter as much as your potential to be someone who would follow Christ. Tax collectors, sinners, drunkards, and prostitutes, those were Jesus' common friends, people he spent time with, those people. Who do you spend time with? I'll say that list again, maybe contemporize it. Thieves, Sinners, drunks, hookers, scammers. <laughs> Those are the people when Jesus was here, he wanted to make sure that they heard it because remember, he was, and we're gonna see it again, he was tainting the kingdom of God from the Pharisees and the religious self-righteous and taking it away from them and hanging it, handing it over to whoever would believe, even the lowest all the way up to the highest. It didn't matter their station in life. Jesus came for us who would follow him and love him. It's a powerful image that Jesus used here. And I just might add this, that for whoever's here that needs to hear this, whoever you were in your past life, Whoever you were Lord, in the midst of like just a time in your life you just like to forget about, whoever you were in your lowest moment, that's not who you are. You are not your worst mistake. You shouldn't be remembered by that because we are becoming new creatures in Christ every day. And I think that's why the Bible says God's mercies are new every morning. It means that God's mercy is never, ever broken. There's no part of God's nature that we would break the bank of his love and his forgiveness as we, um, 
express our sorrow and repent and ask the Lord to help us to walk with him in a new and a fresh way. So who you are, who you were is not who you are. And we are becoming something incredibly um, God-generated and developed as we give our life to Christ. And I wanna say that it's easy, and we'll get to it at the end here, but it's just easy to go on autopilot and do the things that kind of get us by in our faith. And we're gonna see in a minute that even that is met with grace, but it's also met with, met with a stern warning in the following parables. Another, another thing is that uh, I like, as I thought I wrote this first down, is that the Bible also says that we are more than conquerors. You know, so that's pretty cool, right? We got that going for us. More than a conqueror. It's like, it would be like uh, the Seahawks really beating the Chargers really bad today. And I have no love for the Chargers. I like Justin Herbert. And maybe you don't even care about football. I, I do. And I'm up here and you're not. So there's that. <laughs> but I didn't know if the Seahawks would win today. But they, they were more than conquerors today against the Chargers. Would you say those names? Yeah. The Raiders, there's probably not going to be more than conquerors when they play. Brian, what would you say? They did one? Good job, Brian. I'm happy for you. <laughs> Jesus continues his teaching about, uh, in, the, in the next parable, it's the parable of the tenants. And it goes like this. Again, I'm going to read for a second, so just, you know, check your text messages if you want. Jesus says, here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower, leased it to his tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit and the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed one and stoned one. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants saw the son. They said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they said to him, those, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits of their seasons. And Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. So here Jesus quotes Psalm 118. He quotes Psalm 118 to the, the people who are hearing his sermon. But Jesus tells them next what it, what it means. And he couldn't be more clear the whole, this whole, these whole three parables. He says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. <laughs> so again, this was the same sort of slap in the face that he said when he said, surely tax collectors and prostitutes will enter before you. This is like Jesus saying, and just in case you didn't understand me the first time, I will tell you again. He says, it's going to be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now, the people here, the, the Greek word ethnos, which means people from all over, from all different places. It was every people. The thing that they had in common was their faith. It didn't matter what their social 
background was, whether they were low or high or in and out. He was saying, it doesn't matter, but I'm taking it from you. I'm giving it to everybody who's going to have faith, and they're going to have enough faith that what they, how they live their life is going to show up in their works, in their fruits. So if you kind of a little theme here, you understand that Jesus is saying, what you do displays a little bit about who you are, how you act, how you live your life. And he's talking here about showing the fruit, producing its fruits. That's how we can see the faith in one another. Uh, yeah, the fruits of the Spirit, remember those, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control, all those things that, we, you know, you, you maybe memorize a slightly different list. That's the way I remember it. But my point is that at some point in our life, I'd say that point is now, our life should be marked by some of those things. And when you look through that list, you maybe go home and look at it a little bit in Galatians, you might realize, man, I got like one of them pretty good, but there's a lot I don't. Then it's a good chance to think about maybe Maybe I need more of the Lord in my life, more of the Holy Spirit to help me with those things. If any part of this sermon makes you feel bad, that's not my intent. I'm just saying, I just understand that I, I you know, I, I chase bulldozers all the time, and so do you. And at some point, how we act has to reflect what we're learning and how we're growing and Maybe the missing ingredient is sometimes we could stop really caring. Like as long as no one saw me, I got away with it. I talked to a guy at church today as a pastor at the church we go to in Vancouver. I said, how are you doing? And uh, what did he say? He said, uh, uh, oh, he asked me, are you doing good? I said, I'm doing good about you. He goes, you up to no good? He goes, well, I'm just trying not to get caught. That's what he said to me, the pastor. And I appreciated his authenticity. <laughs> I'm just trying not to get caught. I thought, all right, all right, Kip, Pastor Kip. That's all right, yeah. I'm almost done with this, with this long, long text that Michael gave me. A lot of people say too long, but. The chief priests and the Pharisees at this point, they realize they're kind of dumb. He was speaking about them. <laughs> he had been the whole time. He realized at this point, hey, are you talking about us? You know, and although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Um, the next parable, the parable of the wedding feast, I just feel like it's the worst parable in here because it's part of it's the hardest to explain. I feel this was no good that Michael gave it to me, but I'm going to read it. I'm going to tell you what I think, and then we'll close up shop, Okay. So this is the third parable in this sermon that Jesus has given to the Pharisees to try to tell them, hey, the kingdom is taken away from you. You're going to, you know, prostitutes and tax collectors, they're in. I'm taking it away from you. You're out. Other people are in. People from all nations are in. You're not going to be one of them. And this is the third thing that he just really just, you know, gut punches them. He says, again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, 
Tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves. They've been slaughtered. Everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads. They gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. So here we have, let's just call it, a motley crew gathered for the wedding. You followed the story. The people he invited didn't want to come, so he said, go get anybody, everybody. Go to the busiest parts of the streets and bring them in. And, and the, Jesus said there was good people there, and they were bad people there. And then something really weird, there's a weird twist in the story that has people who write about, you know, com commentaries and stuff are, I mean, they're kind of confused about it, if you ask me. No one really has the same answer here. So you're not going to really know that what I'm saying is right or wrong, but I'll tell you what I think. Verse 11. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless, meaning the guy without the wedding garment. So the wedding garment, let's talk about well, what is a wedding garment and am I supposed to have one, you know? Uh, should I be wearing one right now? Uh, some people literally think this might mean church clothes, you know, so like you got your Sunday best on. You don't have your Sunday best, but the wedding garment could have been s several things, but what happens in the story is that the king decides to come to this deal and he sees one guy there with no wedding garment whether it was supposed to be on him whether he was supposed to have maybe had his own did they hand him out at the door and he didn't put his on who knows but the king basically says you sir let's say it was Daniel you Daniel raise your hand it was you and told his soldiers to pick him up and throw him out on his head Caleb Pick him up. No, I'm just kidding. That would be a great image, though. So they threw him out eternally where there's weeping and gnashing and teeth or whatever that, that text says. The idea is he got thrown out for not wearing the right clothes. That's what happened. He got thrown out for not wearing the right clothes. It's not where I thought this story was going. When you read it, you're going, oh, yeah, I get it. It's more of the same. It was taken away from the people who thought they were in, given to the people who thought they were out. They sort of switched places. And that's how the story ends, but it's not how the story ends because the point of the story is something else. The point of the story is there was one guy there without his wedding clothes, and right in front of everybody, they had him thrown out right on his head. That's what happened. So among the things that you may want to study about what does it mean to have the right wedding clothes, I've sort of pulled what I could, and I will say this about why did they throw the guy out and what, what might we learn from it. My thought is this. They threw him out because he did not take the invitation seriously. 
he was pretty casual about it. You know, it'd be like showing up with just the wrong clothes on. You know, you ever have one have a weird dream like that? Let me see your hand. Am I the only one? Like, I'm doing a, I'm doing a wedding for someone, and I'm like, I don't have my suit. Not only do I have my suit, I'm using my jeans. Not only my jeans just turn into shorts, and then I think I'm just in my underwear, and I've got to do a wedding for a bunch of people. I know that's kind of weird, but hey, I'm being, I'm being authentic and weird. I get it. I don't want you to be thinking about me in my underwear, so let me move on to <laughs> this idea that this guy did not take it seriously. He got thrown out. And what is that? why is that important in the story? And why is it important to Jesus to tell this, that they threw the guy out for not being in the right clothes, not taking it seriously enough? The king kicks him out. But the idea here is that the invitation went out to everyone but the point is, is that there is a dress code for us in our faith. There is a dress code. I'll, I'll say it another way. There is a gate. There is a gate that we must enter to be having a relationship with Jesus. It's, it's a wide open gate, but it's a narrow gate. There is a gate. And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And I think especially now, it's kind of easy to sort of not forget, but not really feel like we gotta make a point to everyone we run across that Jesus is the only way. But if there's something said in these parables, it was that Jesus is the only way. There is no other way but him, and that's how we, we become saved. That's how we enter into relationship with God. Jesus also said the gate is narrow, it's hard, that leads to life, and those that find it are few. And going back to the end of the story in verse 11, when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment, and he said to him, friend, how did you get in here? He was speechless, the king threw him out. And the last thing that Jesus says in the story to explain it is this, many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. And that's who we are. Pretty sure we're chosen. We're the elect. And we are the ones that got invited to the feast and responded. I responded to the invitation to the wedding feast when I was 15 years old. I don't know how old you were. I was 15 and I was by myself. I was a little... You know, I, was, I wasn't sober at the time, you know, but just sober, just had enough in the tank to be able to think clearly. And uh, I asked the Lord into my heart at 15, and that was the beginning of me for the invitation to, to be in that wedding feast and to stay there. And the invitation to me was the same invitation that he gave to you in your life. Your life may have looked different, but... I guess the point I want to make as I'm closing is that that invitation for you and I to be a part of a life with Jesus, it's, it's real. It's real, and, and it's not based on what we have to offer. This theory about the, the guy that showed up on a, in his, uh, without any wedding clothes, um, I guess I probably shouldn't, I shouldn't talk about that because I, I feel like Joe Biden up here right now. Oh, I didn't mean to say that. I mean, sometimes older people forget stuff. That's what I totally meant to say. I'm serious. Whew. 
I will say, I've been so far from perfect, both before my days in Christ and, and after. I've been so far from perfect that I am so glad that I'm not getting into the wedding feast based on how good I am because I cannot be good enough to make it on my own, right? You guys believe that about you, right? You can't be so good that you don't make it, you don't, you don't make it there on your own. And as Christians, I'll tell you, I've been in church for a long time. I know how I can be. I can be really judgy and I could be really, really like, you know, yeah, I, you know, that my, my sins are smaller than your sins and because you start measuring people's things and you kind of think, well, if I don't sin as much, let's just say I don't do my big sins. I just do my small sins. Um, I'm a little bit uh, more deserving of the kingdom of God than the person, than, let's just say the tax collectors and the prostitutes. And that's maybe what the, uh, what the guy with the, without the wedding clothes was thinking. I'll just get on my own, do it my own way. I don't need to be all in. And I'm just saying, I think Jesus wants us to be all in. I want you guys to be all in. And that's the way, that's the way it is, 100%. And the, the other thing is, is I sit at the wedding table, the feast, for a while. And I'll tell you, that wedding table changes us. And it's changed you. And I hope it continues to change you. If, if you're here and you're not being serious about your faith in Jesus, and you're wondering why, I mean, let's just say you're still chasing bulldozers. Uh, let me just encourage you to take it more seriously. That's a lot of things I ask myself, and I've been asking myself a lot lately, is wow, it's not a small thing that God saved me, it's a pretty big thing. And the same with you. I mean, think about what he brought you out of. Think of all the things that you've been through. Think about the difficulty in your life. Think about the times that God has answered your prayers. Think about the time when things were uh, so dark in your life and you prayed and you, you cried out to the Lord and he saved you. Those are the things we have to be drawn back to to say, Lord, I want you to be, I want this renewal in my life to be focused on the things that you want me to be focused on. Just the normal status quo stuff. It's not for us. That's not a real fruitful, spirit-filled life if it is just one thing that you do. Our faith has to be everything. And when you think about who Jesus is, he is everything. And he's given everything to you and everything to me. So we can't come to the wedding feast going, huh, yeah, so what are we eating? What's in it for me? There's so much more. We have a savior who died for us, went to the cross. So... If you're not being serious, one, remind yourself of who Jesus is, who, who he has been to you, and two, ask him for more because he says we have not because we ask not. So let's ask him for more. Now let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and we we would like more, Lord, because it's not that we're in fear of getting kicked out of the wedding, but we wonder sometimes, Lord, if um, there's more that we, we can do not to earn our salvation, but to show our love and our commitment to you. 
And we humbly ask, Lord, that you would make us into the men and women that you intended it for us to be. So, Lord, as we go into a time of worship, would you forgive us for our sins? Would you remind us of your goodness that we're allowed in because your love and your mercy? And, Lord, help us to bear the fruit in our lives that would impact our lives, the lives of others in a way, Lord, that would bring you glory. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.